need to take a station break, but please stay with us because when we return, we'll continue our discussion with Nathan Latois, New England Regional Director of American Farmland Trust. You're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, 103.3 FM, an independent nonprofit community-run station in Northampton, Massachusetts. The show streams on valleyfreeradio.org, where you can also find our program schedule and become involved with the station. Sure. So, so American Farmland Trust was was founded about forty years ago to work on farmland conservation. Uh, we're un- we're unique in our mission in that we're the only national organization that that protects land, improves the health and quality of that farmland, and works to support the farmers who are working on that land and and those who are seeking access to the farmland. Um, we've evolved over time, frankly, to use some different tactics to address our various mission areas and as priorities and funding have evolved, but we've been we've been doing work nationally and we've been doing work on the ground here in the Pioneer Valley, um, here all over Massachusetts and New England for the full length of those uh, those 40 years. Mm-hmm. That's a long time. It is. <laughs> and how long have you been with the organization? Sure, so so I've been with, with AFT for, for about four and a half years now. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a, I identify as a farmer from Northfield, Massachusetts. I've been uh, working in ag policy and, and farmland conservation most of my career, but I've been with AFT for about four and a half years. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Uh, so you just alluded to a little bit of the evolution. Uh, do you want to dive deeper into how AFT has evolved over the 40 years? Sure, yeah. So over the course of our time, um, we began as kind of a traditional land trust with a national focus, but working on um, more traditional farmland protection from an easement type basis. Um, we evolved into doing a lot of soil quality work. So protecting not just the acres of our land, but the inches of our farmland. Um, protecting an, an acre of farmland does does little good if all the topsoil ends up in Long Island Sound. Mm-hmm. Um, we've evolved over time to also incorporate the, the need of really having viable farms on that land. Um, land protection in general is great. Forest land protection is great. Open space is great. Our mission is, is pretty restricted to farmland conservation. And without those viable farms, we just have land and open space, which again is is, is great, but to us is not quite the same as, as working landscapes, working farms that are feeding us and clothing us. Um, in New England in particular, um, for, for much of our history, we were known predominantly for our policy work um, also, for anybody who's, who's driven around the region a lot, those green, iconic, no farms, no food bumper stickers, that's us. That's American Farmland Trust. Um, but we were most known within the region in, in the agriculture community for our policy work. Over the last five years, we've really, to have, we've really evolved to have a lot more boots on the ground, working directly with farmers, supporting them in soil health practices um, to protect their land and in, in some farm viability um, work as well to really help keep them viable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, Nathan, the following quote uh, comes from the American Farmland Trust website, and the speaker is William K. Riley, former EPA administrator, former president of the World Wildlife Fund, and former American Farmland Trust board chair. He published this quote in the foreword of his book, No Farm, No Food, Uniting Farmers and Environmentalists to Transform American Agriculture. Uh, he said the current class of climate activists could learn a lesson or two from AFT uh, or the way AFT has approached its work over the years. So this new focus seems uh, timely given that in June of 2022, the EPA estimated that agriculture accounted for 11.2% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions in 2020. So what actions have been taken by uh, American Farmland Trust since the focus shifted to climate change? Sure. Thank you. So, so first, as we dig into this, I think it's um, it's really important just to make sure that we're kind of properly framing um, greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. Uh, I, I take no issues with the numbers that are that, that are presented, but I think um, farming is likely one of the most utilized industries in the world. And, and what I mean by that is, like, we all we all partake in, in, in the fruits of this. Um, we're all we're all eating. We're all being clothed. Um, where many of us are, are traveling from place to place. And so as we think about American agriculture, as I think about American agriculture in this issue, I, I try to continue to remind myself that, that I have the luxury and the privilege to have a wide array of choices about the food or, that I eat or the fiber that I close myself with, 
Um, but many folks in the world do not. And so that number that you cited, that, that 3.2% of greenhouse gas emissions coming from agriculture, I, I choose, and I think it's important to really keep in perspective, that's not agriculture producing these emissions. That is what society has burdened our planet with in an attempt to feed and clothe ourselves. That's really the economic choices that we all make. And, and farmers are, are producing the goods that we demand the best way they can. And if we demand better, if we pay for better, uh, farmers will do better. Farmers will farm differently. They, they can do it and they will do it. Uh, they frequently need some help um, as, as we as society really try to try to ask farmers to up their game to not just reduce emissions, but in many cases take an active role in sequestering carbon that other industries are emitting, that we're emitting as we drive around Western Massachusetts, that we're that we are emitting when we turn our lights on. Um, that that takes some serious technology change on the part of farmers. That takes some added costs on the part of farmers. And I've not met a farmer in my time working in agriculture that hasn't wanted to do the best they can for their community and their environment. Um, but let's be honest, when, when you're on the edge of trying to make a choice between um, feeding your cows or bringing in a veterinarian to, to look after your animals and planting a cover crop that season on your cornfields, um, when farmers are faced with those kind of choices, they've, they, they've got to make the choices that serve their farm business this year that, that, that lead to better animal health outcomes this year. Um, but when we can help support them, when we can provide resources for those cover crops, when we can provide policies that really try to reward them for the good that they're doing in the community, um, those farmers step up. And so what is, what is AFT doing about that? How have we evolved our work over time to really step into the, the climate change issue? Uh, right here in our backyard, we're providing grants to farmers to buy equipment that helps them to adopt no-till farming practices. Uh, we're paying for cover crops to assure that farmers have the inputs in the fall to make sure that their their soils here in the valley don't blow away over the winter. Uh, we're paying for fencing that increases the rotational grazing that can go on on farms so, so farmers can move their animals more frequently, so the grasses that are growing there can sequester more carbon in the ground. Um, we're providing direct technical assistance to those farmers as they as they try to translate into their farming operations, what, what academics, what, what our experts are telling them ought to work on their farm. Well, every farm is different. Every farm is a different business. It's got different soils. And so we're trying to bring them in the forefront of conversations and, and sharing with their peers about how some of these, these technologies, how some of these practices can really be rolled out on farm. And I say that with kind of a chuckle, the average New England farm there is no average New England farm. They're all diversified. They're all doing something a little different. They're all being innovative to, to survive in an area with incredible um, economic pressures, land pressures, environmental pressures. Uh, they're all adapting. And so we're really trying to lean in to provide them help, provide them support. Um, they don't need convincing. Uh, farmers don't need convincing to do the right thing. Every one of them wants to do the right thing. They just need the tools to do it. They just need the financial resources to do it. So we've been um, we, we really pivoted to try to bring those to bear and, and support agriculture here in the Northeast. So Nathan, what have been uh, the benefits to the environment since AFT brought farmers and environmentalists together to collaborate? Yeah, I, I would say um, first and foremost, a, a broader awareness about the importance of, of soil health, about the importance of farmland protection. Um, you know, we can oversimplify this and say just some really simple things, you know, cleaner water, cleaner air, better planning, more protected farmland. Um, in, in 2021 alone across the country, um, we worked with 15,000 producers to provide them technical assistance across the country. Um, some of those were in larger webinars of maybe 60 or 70 producers. Some of them were direct one-on-one -on -one technical assistance. Um, in last year, we took over 400 policy actions. Those are letters to, to legislators on particular pieces of uh, either regulations or, or laws that were being passed. Um, direct advocacy meetings. Um, what we do is is pretty complicated um, because it, it impacts, like I said, it's the land, it's the practices and the people, and we're trying to bring all of those to bear. But we think we've made a difference on the quantity of farmland that we still have today. Um, we're continuing to lose farmland, but we think we're losing it at a slower pace than we would without our work. Um, we have seen improvements in the knowledge that farmers possess about how to adopt conservation practices. And we know we've dedicated um, and we've directed through the Farm Bill, 
Um, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of challenges with the farm bill. Um, anybody who's really ever dug into the farm bill knows that it is a, it's a list of challenges, uh, but there's also billions in there for con uh, uh, conservation, many of which have, have come to New England to help producers do better. Something that we really uh, help drive forward over time. Uh, well, I can. Uh, what would you say have been the most uh, effective strategies of American Farmland Trust? You know, I've, I've, I've talked a little bit um, about some of our policy work. I've talked a little bit about some of our direct technical assistance to producers on the ground. And what I have seen that is just amazingly impactful is when these two things are really deployed in a way with a quick feedback loop. When we can go out and we can meet with, when some of our staff can meet with a farmer they can understand those farmers' challenges. They can they can try to get them assistance within a particular program. And when they run into a barrier, um, they can go back to the office and send a quick email to some of the top agricultural policy experts in America, who are continuously you know when one farm bill is done, we're working on the next one. When one state legislative session is done, we're working on the next one. And we can have that kind of feedback loop between the problems that farmers are facing in the field and the resources they're looking for. And some of the policy work that we can do in, in Congress and in state capitals at USDA, um, it's kind of a marrying of two tactics, really. Uh, but when we can marry those well, when we can really work on policies that we've learned about from farmers directly, that we have experienced um, their challenges as we've tried to uh, work with them to, to do a little bit better, um, that's really, really powerful. And, and I think we've had a lot of success as an organization doing that. You're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts. And we're talking with Nathan Latois, New England Regional Director of American Farmland Trust. Uh, so, Nathan, uh, I can appreciate that multiple strategies uh, had to be developed in order for AFT to meet its goals. So one strategy uh, that's mentioned on... The website, uh oh, that got cut off. So I'm not sure what strategy I was talking about, but uh, <laughs> I guess <laughs> that's my printer. I'm uh, so sorry. I don't. My color cartridge ran out. <laughs> it uh, must have been in a different color. I am so sorry. Uh, my bad. Well, we'll, we'll skip that one. Um, so, so Nathan, I suspect that when working <clears throat> toward reversing climate change, uh, planting trees, you know, is an effective strategy and well known uh, amongst the general population. Uh, modern farms obviously require open land versus forested land. So is there a way to find a middle ground? Yeah, definitely. Um, first, I think there's there's really an, under, a, there's an understanding amongst most of us, all of us maybe who, who are doing this work, that we do need to urgently stop climate change in its tracks. Um, but we also know that we need to feed the world. Um, and and societies will find a way to feed their people. Um, we'll find a way to produce enough food to feed our people. Whether or not all that food reaches the right people is an economic choice that we need to make better at times, but, but we're gonna produce the food that we need. And as we begin to prioritize certain types of land uses, um, some folks have really talked about, well, let's, let's reforest parts of New England Let's convert some some farmland into into forest land. And Harvard Forest released a paper a, a while ago, I think back in early two thousands, that had a real impact on me. It was the illusion of preservation. And the the point of their of their paper, there were a few different themes, but the real point of their paper was that um, if we choose to lock up our land close to home and prevent it from being utilized to produce particular resources for for our society we're really just outsourcing that production somewhere else where we have less control over it. If we look at the land around us as, as best, if we produce the resources we need closest to us, we have the most control over them. So we can really find a way to prioritize farmland protection and farmland protection on the farmland that we have here. Um, if we were to reforest some acres of New England landscape, you know, we're gonna, society is gonna produce that food somewhere and it's likely gonna lead to deforestation somewhere else. So, so let's produce that, that food as close as we can to home. Let's utilize that farmland that we have as best as we can. Let's make it more efficient and more productive and more sustainable. It's going to take some public investment. Um, it may feel better in some ways to just you know, lock up our land and preserve it and maybe reforest it and, and buy our food from somewhere else. But, but I can guarantee you, if we care about where our food's coming from and we produce it closer to home, that's going to be a much, better, much bigger impact because we, we, we have to have that food one way or another. Um, and it's, it, it's going to come from somewhere. So let's, let's produce it locally. 
You know, that's so interesting. We had a um, Beef Forge farm on a couple of months ago, and they were talking about how hard it is to reclaim farmland. You know, they, they took over a family farm that had let <laughs> trees come in, and that work effort and the energy to put in to, you know, bring it back to being uh, open open farmland was intense. They're working at it very yeah. slowly. So I, I didn't think of it that way. Very interesting. Yeah. You know, the, the, the status of the New England landscape, it wants to be trees. If you stop mowing your lawn for a few years, you're going to begin to see those maple trees sprout up and those birch trees sprout up. New England wants to be forest. Mm -hmm. And it was forest at one point. But, you know, we, we've done a lot to convert a lot of this land to, uh, to other things. Farmlands, houses, roads. Um, let's, let's keep that farmland that we have as farmland. Let's keep those forests as forest. And let's, let's prioritize the conservation of what we have for, for forest land. Let's also uh, let's keep that farmland producing. Um, it is so hard to bring back, like you say. It's incredibly expensive. It's incredibly onerous. It requires a lot of fuel and a lot of effort. Um, let's let's keep the stuff we have working and working well. Mm -hmm. So, Nathan, what are your thoughts on agroforestry? Yeah, I think um, agroforestry is a great idea. I think, um, especially when it comes to pasture, um, to begin to to plant more trees within our pastures, to integrate. Um, trees and, and, and not just whole trees, but shrubs and windrows and really increasing the amount of carbon that, that we're storing on our land. Um, it doesn't work everywhere. It can work in some instances. It doesn't work for all cropping systems or all crops, but we're learning more and more about, about permaculture, about how to integrate even things like grain production and tree production. Um, it, it takes some adapting. It takes some risk on the part of producers but um, the more we can we can integrate and get multiple uses out of the land, um, the better off we'll be. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm seeing many uh, many more farms with solar panels in their fields, uh, as probably most of you listeners out there have as well. So, what are the pros and cons of uh, farms having panels? Sure, you know that, that that's, that's a great lead-in from the the comment about having land do as much as as it can. Um, I think there are a lot of different scales of this. And on the one hand, we have smaller scale solar where a farm might, might put solar panels on a barn or might put up a few panels at a field edge to really power their farm. Um, farms are incredible users of energy. Um, they do on-farm processing. They have large buildings, some of which need heat. Uh, we, we do cooling of produce. Like we, we can use a lot of energy in agriculture and anything we can do to make that energy usage greener is obviously better. As the scale grows and we begin to look at panels for off-farm needs, you know, this gets this gets a lot more complex. Um, the nation has some incredible goals for renewable energy production, and those goals require vast amounts of land. And, and frankly, it's more land than we have built spaces for. Um, so how do we balance that? How, how, do we, how do we stop climate change as we all know that we need to, and how do we continue to feed a nation how do we keep our, our rural character um, as, as we've grown used to? And, and AFT has actually done a lot of work in this space. Um, we, we really leaned into this issue and we've got some pretty foundational guidelines that um, we look at as smart solar siting guidelines. You know, First and foremost, we ought to be prioritizing development and built spaces first. Brownfields, rooftops, parking lots, it, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Frankly, there's not enough of that, and we need to recognize that there's not enough of that. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to make sure that we are fully subsidizing and really incentivizing um, putting solar in the built environment. Mm -hmm. We believe real strongly that we should avoid siting solar on farmland in a way that displaces agriculture. Mm -hmm. And I say that a little bit nuanced. That's not saying, you know, don't ever put a solar panel on farmland. Um, we, can, we can do this in an integrated manner. It is more expensive. It is harder. It is more expensive. <laughs> I know I just said that, but that's that's such an overarching issue. But there are ways to to really integrate agriculture and solar, um, and so that kind of leads into our third priority, which is really incentivizing dual use arrays, where we do need to actually have more solar than our built environment can can take. Um, it's it's kind of cutting edge stuff. It's really cool. It's being done in many parts of the of the world. It's it's beginning to to be rolled out here in Massachusetts. Um, but we have incredible demands for land and we can't optimize for everything. Um, and climate change is the emergency of our day. And we've got to figure out a way to get off fossil fuels. 
We have to figure out a way to get off fracked gas. Um, these are difficult choices to make. And so our, our position has really been that, um, again, put it on bill spaces first, where we need to turn to open lands. You know, let, let, let's not cut down trees to do it. Where we can do this dual use aspect, let's try to do that. And let's provide the incentives so that it can be done right. We also believe that any solar project, wherever it is, whether it's a gravel bank, whether it's a brownfield, um, we really ought to be prioritizing um, soil conservation standards, pollinator habitat within those arrays where possible, um, water infiltration management. You know, as we look at water challenges around the country, um, building building solar arrays that don't just collect water and, and help move it away, but collecting that water and getting into the ground, the actual infiltration management, not just water management. And significant erosion control, especially during construction, because that's when we can see a lot of uh, a lot of soil loss. Um, one of the interesting kind of perspectives of the land trust, I think, is the we're in the forever game. We are trying to do things now to make a better environment, to make a better world for our communities 100 years from now, 150 years from now. Um, many, much of the farmland that you drive past as you drive through Western New England. That has been farmland for hundreds of years, and that has been farmland because other people have kept it as farmland. And we're trying to make sure that when we drive around New England, probably won't be driving, that'll be a, be a silly word, but when we're moving around New England hundreds of years from now, that farmland is still there. And, and solar at some point will be gone. We won't be doing this type of thing in the future. And when those solar panels come back, sorry, come off, what's that land good for? Did we build that solar array in a way that destroyed the soil? that put all this concrete in the ground and metal in the ground, or did we build it in a way that really minimized the impact? Did we plant, did we plant cover crops or pollinator friendly plants in that time that really built the soil and actually restored its health and put carbon in the ground? Um, yeah, like I said, it's, it's, it's complicated, but it's important. So this is such a dumb question, but what exactly do you mean by dual use? Sure. Array? Really? Um, really integrating agricultural use and those solar panels. Um, we can elevate the solar panels, we can spread them out so that agriculture can continue to happen underneath. Um, if that land is suitable for pasture, maybe it, we just need to lift the panels up a little bit and spread them out a little bit so that animals can graze under them. Plus um, they'll like sheep, the shade. Cattle. Yeah, if, if, it's, if it's great valley river bottom soils, maybe we need to lift those panels up even higher so we can actually drive tractors under them. Maybe we need to spread them out more so that the crops can can make sure they're they're not shaded um, significantly and really grow food around. That that sounds like a, a pipe dream to some, but it is it is happening in many parts of the world, and it can happen here too. So Nathan, uh, so you've you've already brought up the topic of pollinators. I was curious uh, what other pollinator related projects uh, AFT has taken on. Sure, you know, right, right here in Western New England, we have a project that. Um, really spans much of the Connecticut River watershed from, uh, from the Canadian border down to Long Island Sound, um, where we're working with livestock producers to improve their conservation practices. But one of the real goals of that project is trying to support farmers in improving the pollinator habitat on their farms. We're looking to hedgerows on those farms. We're looking to some of the pastures themselves to be planting more pollinator friendly species. We're looking at adapting grazing plants so that we're actually leaving some of that pasture flowering in a way that might, you know, it, it, it might uh, lead to less less favorable grazing in a particular area of the paddock. But as we rotate those around over the course of several years, um, as we change the, the grazing pressure at different times, we make sure that we can really maintain a viable population of, of pollinators within that within that pasture uh, because of the species that we're raising there and the way that we're actually grazing them. So trying to provide more technical assistance and again, that, that, that funding side trying to help pay those farmers for those more expensive seeds, trying to help pay them to plant those hedgerows that reduce wind erosion and provide great pollinator habitat um, during critical times of the year when, when other, uh, other flower sources are not available. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so I'm aware that um, there's currently legislation to financially support growing pollinator friendly flowers. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, the grass islands between the solar panels. Um, so what are your thoughts on that legislation? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great example of how um, when we want folks to do better, we as a society need to be willing to step up and actually compensate for that. And that's a great example of, of um, an advocacy community trying to do that, to say, look, if we want 
if we want these better practices, we need to subsidize them. We need to actually pay for that added that added cost. Um, whether the ratepayer pays it through higher electric bills in the end, or whether there's simply grants or tax incentives to do that, um, society is paying for the choices that it makes. And we just need to figure out a way to really understand what the best practices are and, and pay for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, of course, I mean, you met, you've already alluded to soil and clearly soil health is vital when it comes to growing food. So what have been uh, the results of the report Soil Conservation in America? What do we have to lose? Uh, that was mentioned on your AFT website as well. Yeah, so that was a report from from almost forty years ago. Gosh, that 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 was the uh, the mid eighties, early eighties that that report was done, and it was really about um, loss of soil through erosion and just the importance of that soil, the importance of that topsoil. Um, since that time, I think that report and others have really raised the profile of this issue, um, not just raised the profile of the issue, but help help point out what we can do about it. Uh, things like cover crops, things like no till things that reduce wind erosion, planting those hedgerows that I mentioned, which can have multiple benefits for, for pollinator habitat and to, to prevent erosion, um, really just elevating the importance of these issues in the minds of policymakers, in the minds of farmers. Um, soil erosion has been a challenge. You know, the, the, one of the biggest governmental agencies in, in, that, that we have is the Natural Resource Conservation Service, and they were founded as a result of the Dust Bowl. Um, they, they, they were first founded as a soil conservation service, and then they were uh, changed to the Natural Resource Conservation Service. Um, soil loss, um, many folks would argue that, that, that our soil is America's greatest asset, and we lose it every day. And we need to do a lot more, but that report and, and many others since it uh, have really done a lot to just increase the awareness and to show solutions. Um, and, and I think those are really starting to uh, play out and, and bear fruit. We need to take a station break, but please stay with us because when we return, we'll continue our discussion with Nathan Latois, New England Regional Director of American Farmland Trust. You're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, 103.3 FM, an independent nonprofit community-run station in Northampton, Massachusetts. The show streams on valleyfreeradio.org, where you can also find our program schedule and become involved with the station. You may know Dakin Humane Society is a great place to adopt a pet, but we offer so much more for animals than the people who love them. Our community clinic is New England's largest spay-neuter provider. Each week, we hold a vaccine and microchip clinic with affordable fees. We operate a pet food bank in conjunction with our community partners, so no member of your family goes hungry. Our website has information about these services and more. If you'd like to support animals in need, please visit DakinHumane.org. They depend on us. And we depend on you. Honey, isn't it amazing? What? The, the sacrifice, the dedication, the grit. I mean, they really set an example, don't they? Oh, well, no question. Today's high school athletes are truly special. Not the athletes. Woohoo. The officials. Oh. Today's student athletes are truly special. But there's something pretty great about the men and women who officiate their games, too. Like the way they're giving back to their communities. Officiating is a terrific way to stay in shape, meet new people, and stay connected to the game you love. But the biggest reason of all? We need more qualified high school officials here in Massachusetts. And without them, the rest of us would have a whole lot less to cheer about. High school games need officials. High school sports need you. Great call, Rob. Yeah. Interested in becoming a licensed high school official? Go to highschoolofficials.com to learn more and begin the application process. From the one-ups to the hit points, Kadesh Flow to Mega Ran, Press Start to Continue gives you two full hours of the best in video game remixes and nerdcore hip-hop. Join Morlock every Monday night at 9 on Valley Free Radio 103.3 FM and check out the show archives at starttocontinue.com. Press Start to Continue, bringing nerd music to the masses. This is Mario Andretti. You know me as a race car driver, but I'm also a Meals on Wheels volunteer. I've raced against the sport's biggest personalities, but I've never met more vibrant, amazing people than the seniors served by Meals on Wheels. You can make a difference by dropping off a hot meal and saying a quick hello. So America, let's do lunch. 
Volunteer your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. My name is Jessica Sue Timberlake, co-host and show producer Carolyn Rudderman. Join me in the studio. We've been talking with Nathan Latois, New England Regional Director of American Farmland Trust. So, uh, yes, we were talking about soil before we went on break. Uh, so water clearly is another vital resource for growing food. Uh, but as we all know, drinking water is drying up all over the country. So how is American Farmland Trust uh, addressing the water issue, Nathan? Sure. Our, our work around water really um, really spans the country like, like a lot of our work does. But I would say we've been doing the most on this in, in the West. Um, while water issues are important close to home here in the Valley, um, our, our work really actually is, is leading the way in, in California, the San Joaquin Valley, um, where farmland loss and water availability are probably both compete as equal threats to agriculture's f- future in the area. Um, so a lot of our work in, in that area really seeks to identify where we have the highest quality of farmland that is also proximate to our, our highest availability and most certain water supplies. Um, when we, when we think about fairly s- small parts of our country from a percentage standpoint, you know, the, the San Joaquin Valley produces roughly half of California's agricultural crops. California produces roughly half the produce for this entire country. Um, it is where our, our vegetables come from, um, California. It is dependent upon water, and it is critically important that we do find a way, um, not just to protect that farmland, but protect the water that sustains that. Also to improve our usage of water. Obviously, we need to be growing crops that require less water. We need to be being more efficient with our water. Um, closer to home here in Massachusetts, we actually work a lot with the Natural Resource Conservation Service. One of the things that we do then is we provide conservation planning assistance to farmers. So this is um, helping farmers plan on their farm, how to protect their natural resources, how to um, have less of an impact on the environment in general. And one of the things that a lot of farmers are looking at right now, especially, is their water. How to become less dependent upon surface water supplies, which are are far less resilient. They, they evaporate faster. They dry out faster in times of drought. They flood faster. They're more prone to... Uh, issues of E. coli as we're looking at um, water quality. So really helping those farmers transition to more reliable water sources like groundwater, but also, and most importantly, reduce their water usage, looking at far more efficient uses of water. Very simple things like replacing overhead irrigation, those old fashioned sprinklers that we've all seen, especially on some of the the large farms we go by, those big irrigation units where the water is, is spreading out to those crops overhead and putting in drip irrigation that puts small amounts of water right next to the plants on the ground, um, eases it out over time gently to minimize uh, evaporation and waste, really helping to farmers to, to mitigate those issues. Um, interestingly, here in New England, you know, it's, it's water is a very complex issue for our farmers. It's either too much of it or too little of it. Right now, there's too little of it. Last year, we had too much of it for a while. Um, it, it's really challenging, and it's not going to get any better. Like that's, that's what climate change is doing to us here in New England. We we might feel on a hot day like this that it's the temperatures that are affecting us most in New England. You know, most projections for climate change for us here in New England, it's about the bigger storm events. It's about increased water and it's about prolonged droughts, oddly enough. So when we get rain, we're going to get more of it. When we're not getting it, we're going to get even less of it. And that's really, really hard for our farmers. So helping them to build a resiliency. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, across the country, we're working on water issues right here in our backyard here in Massachusetts. Um, working on some water efficiency, working on uh, replacing surface water with groundwater, um, all through a, a cooperative project with the Natural Resource Conservation Service, which is an incredible partner in our work. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, so, Nathan, what can listeners do uh, to, you know, to help the work of American Farmland Trust? Sure. Yes. Yeah, you know, not not to be too crass, but but check out our website and consider supporting us financially. Uh, farmland.org really easy website to, to navigate to, um, consider going there, consider signing up to, to be a supporter, get a bumper sticker, those iconic green, no farms, no food bumper stickers that I mentioned earlier. Um, basically any donation gets you a, uh, gets you a bumper sticker. Um, for those who have a little bit more time who want to really dig into these issues more, we've just released a national report called farms under threat, choosing an abundant future. 
Um, we've analyzed the pace of, of population growth and farmland conversion across the country, looking at every meter of this country and its susceptibility to conversion to other uses. Um, this is a pretty staggering number, but looking just here in Massachusetts, 74,000 acres we're projecting to lose with business as usual by 2040. So if, if we don't increase population growth, if we don't increase the, the pace of development, um, we're going to lose 74,000 acres of farmland right here in Massachusetts. The vast majority of that being in the Pioneer Valley, where we've got some of the best farmland in America up against, I wouldn't call them, you know, huge urban centers, but it's, we have so many people living in such close proximity to such amazing farmland, and we're risking losing that. We're really asking through this report to step up our planning efforts as, as, as communities all across the country, step up our farmland conservation efforts. There are a litany of great resources and tools to understand these issues in that, in that report. Um, 74,000 acres, if we just keep going along, that's, that's not an increase in, in development, that's just business as usual. If we do better planning, we can drop that significantly. If we protect more farmland, we can drop that significantly. For those who don't have the time to, uh, to, to dig into a website and read a long report, um, support your local farmer, support your local land trust. Uh, next time you need to go shopping, stop at that, that farmer's market. You know, we, we in the land trust community like to think that we've had an incredible impact and that we're responsible for, for all this beautiful farmland that we have around us. Let's be honest, land trusts have been doing work for 40 or 50 years, but farmers have been stewarding that land for for 300, 350 years. And when I say farmers, you know, the, the European perspective of a farmer prior to that, indigenous people were stewarding this land for tens of thousands of years. Um, that land is there, that land is available to us because of the grace of many who came before us. And it had to be worth it for them to do it. Um, in this day and age, if you wanna support farms around you, if you wanna keep that farmland, support the local farmer, um, go out and buy something from them. I, I have no qualms with various certification programs like organic or pasture raised or GMO, but I'll choose purchasing from a farmer down the road that doesn't have a certification, but I can talk to them. I can understand them. I know that they feed that produce to their children. I know they're drinking the water out of the well on their farm. I'll choose that before I choose any of those certifications any day. And, um, and that's how we can make the best impact on, on saving our farms around us is just support those farmers, buy from them. Um, it's also election season. Um, if these issues matter to you, pick up the phone, call the people who are running for office, tell them that you think farms and farmland conservation and soil are, are and soil health are a really high uh, priority of yours and that they should be of theirs as well. Uh, we've got all kinds of great candidates running um, around us and, and they're all out there looking for the issues that will resonate with, with their constituents. Um, pick up the phone and give them a call and tell them that agriculture is really important to you. Tell them that soil health is important. Um, tell them that you care about where your food comes from and you want them to make it a priority of theirs. Um, so I know those are a few different ways to do it, but that's how you can support us in our work. So um, a lot of urban planners have been sort of stressing infill and development in places where there's already development. Would your organization, do you have an, a, a policy position on that where, you know, they, they fill in backyards of people, you know, with second houses or, you know, build over roads and things like that. Yeah, you know, it's it's a really, really challenging mix that, you know, we all we all want that bigger house lot. We all want our open space. We all move to the country because we want that 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 freedom around us. Um, no one's no one's making more farmland. No one's making more land around us. And we really got to figure out a way as a society to make sure that we are we're first prioritizing building in our built places. We need to increase our public transportation that's available so that people can actually get around when they're living in a, in, in a community and their doctor's office might be a little bit of a distance away. You know, a lot of people do not have to get in the car and drive everywhere. Um, it also though takes investments in public water and public sewer to be able to have those infills. You know, if you live in a community that doesn't have public water or public sewer, it doesn't matter what your planning is. You're not gonna have a house lot less than an acre because you can't fit a well and a septic on them. Yeah. So those, the, those take some public investments beyond just a stroke of a pen and minimum lot sizes or maximum lot sizes, um, but prioritizing that kind of density that allows us to, to conserve forest land, conserve farmland, to conserve our open space. Those are incredibly important, incredibly important choices for us to make. In a similar vein, um, a lot of the folks that look at the grid infrastructure are worried about all the electric cars. 
being loaded up on the grid every night when everybody gets home from work. Do you, do you have any positions or thoughts on sort of the electrical system to support trying to be more sustainable and keeping farmland open? Yeah, you know, we're not um, we're not energy experts. We're not infrastructure experts per se. Um, I, I do know that we got to stop using so many resources. You know, the fact that electric demand just keeps increasing and increasing regardless of what we try to do from an efficiency standpoint, that's challenging. Uh, the reality is, though, we all want the lights to turn on when we turn the light on. Uh, many of us want to be able to get in the car and drive to a to a child's ball game, drive to a doctor's appointment. We got to do that somehow. Um, the ability to have cars charging at night when um, many of us are not using our our dishwashers and our washing machines, those kind of things, when factories are not at the same level of output. You know, a smarter grid I think could make a big impact. But we're getting into some areas that we're not really expert on. Um, but knowing that. We, we have a lot of hard choices to make as a society. And I think um, protecting the farmland that we have, um, minimizing the conversion of that land for energy production, um, doesn't mean we can't use it for both, but really minimizing that conversion, um, not displacing agriculture from that land is, is going to be incredibly important. Very important. So Nathan, from uh, interviewing farmers, we know that there are fewer and fewer young adults uh, who are interested in taking on farm ownership from a parent. So is AFT addressing this issue? And if so, how? Yeah, so we we do work at different scales across the country. One of the things that we do is a large, um, call it farmland for a new generation, um, really helping to equip that that next generation of farmers and going out there and, and finding good farms, finding good farmland. Um, understanding how to assess a farming opportunity and not just think that they can build everything through sweat equity. Understanding what, what makes a good farming field. Um, what makes a good lease with a landowner? Um, what do you need to do to access the capital that it takes to farm? Um, also trying to connect those that are looking to retire from agriculture. Um, we are seeing more and more that the farm transitions are not always interfamily. And when we begin to do that work, though, is also when we can really begin to make a difference in some of the, the legacy challenges that we have around farmland ownership and farmland access and just who has the ability to farm in America. Um, farmland ownership is incredibly white, especially in New England. Less than 2% of, of farmland is owned by non-white farmers here in New England. That is incredibly inappropriate. It's a result of a very racist, institutionally racist system that we all exist in. Um, we don't just choose to not do harm. We're trying to actively figure out a way to create new farming opportunities, bring those farming opportunities to, to folks who have not had access to capital, who have not had access to land. Um, and when we look at interfamily transfers, the, that's an even harder thing to do because many of these issues are race-based. And the way that we begin to, to tip these scales back the way they should be is by really helping to create new farming opportunities, helping to steward those, those transfers of land from one generation to the next. It's a time when a farm is most under threat is when it's going through a generational transfer. Um, it's going from a, an aging population, it's going from a senior population to, or generation to the next generation. Um, that's a really hard time for a farm's security. Um, it's a really uncertain time for farm security. And so figuring out ways to, to have easier transitions, um, farmland easements, for example, that can reduce the cost of acquiring a farm for a farmer, more access to capital to make it easier for them to borrow the money to go out and buy that farm. Um, simple farm training to actually, okay, how do I farm? How do I adopt these conservation practices? All of those things are, are parts of the work that we do. And it's a really important part really important part. You're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts. And we're talking with Nathan Latois, New England Regional Director of American Farmland Trust. Uh, so Nathan, uh, the Farm and Ranch Land Protection Program was incorporated into the 1996 Farm Bill, uh, which I read about on your website, which was later incorporated into a broader agricultural conservation easement program. So what did this do to support ranchers? Because your organization not only supports farmers, but also ranchers. 
Yeah, sure. Um, the, that that program really has been available for for farming and, and and ranching. You know, protecting all of the farmland that we have, of the roughly billion acres of, of agricultural land that we have across the country, a significant percentage of that is actually ranch land. It's 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 grasslands. It's lands that have historically been plains. They haven't been trees. Much of that land has never been tilled. Um, it is grassland, and it, but but it is farmed. Um, it's, a, it's a valuable source of, of farmland for, for protein. Um, this easement program has been available to all farmers. Um, the Agricultural Conservation Easement Program, it is, it's one of the most important tools in that battle for protecting that farmland that I mentioned, that 74,000 acres that we're facing losing here in Massachusetts. Um, an easement is a simple tool where a, a farmer owns land and another party actually buys the rights to develop that land from the farmer. It doesn't buy the land. So what they're doing is they're buying the rights to develop the land and they're actually extinguishing those rights so that that land can continue to be in private ownership and the, and public, and, and, and the public can benefit from it, but it's still in private hands. The landowner is going to pay taxes on it. The landowner is going to continue to operate a business on that land. But what they don't own is the right to develop it for non-agricultural purposes. And so it, um, it, it benefits society vastly by protecting that farmland, by maintaining it as open space, but also by keeping it working agricultural land. And and that that first farm and ranch land protection program, and then the, the next program that followed it that really replaced it, that ag conservation easement program, that's been the number one source that has protected this land all across America. It's an incredibly valuable program. Does that change the tax status of the land? Do you know? So that really depends on on the community, on the state that you're in. You know, here in Massachusetts, people may have heard of the the 61A program. It's forest land is taxed that way, agricultural land is taxed that way, and and those conservation easements generally do not change the tax status because that land was taxed under the current use taxation program anyway. Um, in some areas of the country, it can. Uh, here, close to home in Massachusetts, it usually does not have a have a have a difference because it's not like state-owned land where the state is actually buying the land and taking it off the tax rolls. It's keeping it in private hands and those taxes continue to be paid. So Nathan, the American Farmland Trust uh, in collaboration with USDA researchers developed a tool called uh, is it pronounced CARP, which yeah. quantifies the potential of carbon emissions, uh, regenerative practices. How does, how does that work? So, I am not a, a I, I do not have my PhD in soil chemistry or, mm -hmm. or, or soil science. Thankfully, we do have some incredible researchers who do. And what they've been able to do is using incredible troves of data that USDA and, and other scientists have compiled over the years is model in a particular type of soil. If a certain practice is adopted, maybe that practice is uh, no-till. So actually not tilling the soil before we plant, or maybe that practices the planting of cover crops, or maybe that practice is actually rotating crops in a certain way that it builds the soil's health in a predictable manner. Um, it's an incredible model that allows a, a planner, a scientist or a farmer themselves to look at their land and their land use history and say, what is the impact on greenhouse gas emissions mm -hmm. if I adopt a particular practice? One of the uh, one of the greatest investments that our nation has made in its agriculture is we have mapped every square foot of this country's soils, and we know the soil type. You know, we're getting a little into the weeds of of soils and agriculture and conservation, but it's all different types of soil based on the structure of that soil, the amount of rocks, the slopes, all of these different things that make that soil act very differently, make it hold water differently, make it sequester carbon differently, make it grow crops very differently. And so by using that soil map of the entire country, which is actually very accurate and looking at the types of agriculture that exist in each area um, as, as on a large planning level, we can begin to model across a broader landscape and say, okay, if, if dairy farms in New England, if we could increase the amount of cover crops implemented by 10%, what would the equivalent of that be in terms of cars off the road? We can do that. Really, really cool uh, program to help us direct investments and actually farmers can drill down and really look at their own farm and their own circumstances and see how can I make the biggest impact on climate change here on my farm. Mm -hmm. um, 
Well, in 2017, uh, American Farmland Trust launched a new climate initiative with the title Farmers Combat Climate Change, which you may have alluded to uh, earlier. What was the result of that initiative? It is absolutely an ongoing initiative. I, I, I don't think we've, um, we haven't seen the result of the initiative. What we do know is that we have been able to leverage greater investment in uh, combating climate change and enlisting farmers in that in the effort to combat climate change across the nation. It's, it's really an umbrella um, initiative that encompasses a lot of our work, um, both on the technical assistance side and on the research side. Um, we have been able to work with incredibly large agricultural organizations to help them understand how they can better address soil health. We've been able to work with really, really powerful environmental organizations to show how they can they can really embrace agriculture as part of the solution. You know, you, you mentioned a pretty important number early on, you know, we as a society are produ using, producing 11.2% of the greenhouse gases through our food production. Um, and I keep thinking that, that saying we as a society are doing that to produce our food is the best way to say it. But um, not only can we reduce that, but we can help make farmers part of the solution to mitigating other people's challenges. Uh, and that's really been, been a result of that initiative is building those bridges, building those allies, um, helping even organizations like USDA better frame the work that we've been doing for many, many years around soil health as a real um, climate change, resiliency, adaptation, and um, actually combat climate change tool. Yeah. Well, Nathan, we have about a minute left. Uh, do you want to throw out any last uh, website addresses or contact information to our listeners? Sure. Sure. Uh, Farmland.org, really easy. Go there, uh, grab a bumper sticker, make a donation if you'd like. Check out that report that I mentioned, Farms Under Threat. is an executive summary of it if folks want a short read. Uh, most importantly, though, if you care about the farmland around you, if you care about the, the, the landscape we have, um, support the farmers that are around you. Buy directly from them. Tell them that they matter. Tell them that you care and tell them that you're there because you really value what they do. Mm-hmm. We'd like to thank our guest, Nathan Latois, New England Regional Director of American Farmland Trust. You may find additional information about Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio's website, valleyfreeradio.org. Our theme song, Sometimes I Wonder Where My Food Comes From, was written by Scraggly Dan and the Stragglers for this Farm to Fork, sh uh, Farm to Fork Radio program and performed by artists. This Farm to Fork show will re-air this Thursday from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. Tune in to Occupy the Airwaves here on Valley Free Radio on Sundays from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. And enjoy interviews with activists, teachers, historians, writers, musicians, and artists who believe that these times are critical and the world needs a, cor a course correction. The Occupy movement needs to publicize itself because it surely will not be covered well and properly by mainstream media. This movement needs to have a space for debate, dialogue, and progression. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for Twilight's Poetry Pub with host Tommy Twilight. <laughs>